John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Before we get to our text this morning, I want to tell you about an opportunity two weeks from now. Um, The leadership of the church has been working on several things simultaneously in light of our, our mission uh, updating our facilities, looking at everything we do on Sunday mornings uh, from when people come on to the campus to when they sit in the pews to fellowship, and then also how do we disciple, how do we equip our people. I'm going to give you an update on uh, March the 5th uh, about those things down in the fellowship hall from about 1045 to 11. Uh, 15. It's not a particularly long period of time, but it's just an update. More conversation will will follow. But if you would like to uh, hear that update after this service, you'll just grab a cup of coffee and, and sit in the chairs that will be in the fellowship hall, and I'll be able to make that presentation and take a few uh, questions and provide some answers. But that'll that'll be on March the 5th down in the fellowship hall. Now, as we uh, turn to this text, let me uh, set it up this way. Um, There was a man who owned a lot of property, but it had gone into uh, disrepair because simply he didn't have time. He wasn't feeling well. He didn't didn't have people gardening all of his property. And one of the pieces of the property that was uh, off uh, the main estate was a tennis court made of grass and that tennis court, if you know anything about grass courts, you have to maintain them, particularly for weeds, because if you leave them unattended, it's not long before it doesn't look like a tennis court anymore. It returns to the state uh, of a field that is 
fairly unusable. Well, it was unusable except for a couple of boys who turned it into a new game with a kickball, almost like they had a soccer ball and they just kicked it over the net that was sagging and with holes anyway and developed this whole new game of kickball until the owner got better. And when he got better, he noticed that these boys were playing on his tennis court. And while they were away, he had a gardener's uh, de-weed it, reline it, uh, a new net. And so when the boys came and they saw what it was, he says, do you, do you want to learn how to play the real game? The game that it was designed, this field was designed for. Because in life, sometimes we don't know why certain things happen. We don't always know why something occurs. Let me give you another illustration in 19... Uh, 71, from the summer of 71 to, till the fall of 1972, our culture was going through uh, a seismic a shift, some significant happenings. We had just seen the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. We came into the 19... Uh, a 70 with a Vietnam still uh, going on, and now the, our community, our, our country had turned against that particular war, and there were huge protests all the way in uh, uh, to 70, 71, 72. Uh, along with that were the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, and there were the race riots, there was the bombings in D.C., it just goes on and on in 1971 and 72. It just looked like our nation was coming apart, that the divisions that uh, identified us were now becoming uh, a chasms between uh, communities of people. And so this uh, company wanted to take advantage of how America was struggling. It's called Coca-Cola. They... Uh, uh, asked an advertising company to take this this jingle, this song that they had uh, written for them and turn it into an ad campaign called The Real Thing. And uh, if those of you who are old enough to remember uh, 19, the fall of 1972 when this commercial was being released, it starts with a blonde, uh, beautiful girl who begins to sing, I, I, I want to teach you a new song. I want to teach you how to sing. And it is about the real thing. You see, if we don't know, we will mistake something that is not real for the real, that is the shadow, the symbol, the picture for the real thing. And that's really what this text is all about. It's about us seeing the real thing. That is what it shadows what it points to. And if we're not careful, all we're going to see is a paralyzed man walk. Or a group of Jewish leaders upset because he walks with his bed on a, on a Sabbath day. On a holy day. A special day. And we won't even recognize that Jesus could have healed everybody that day. He could have healed everybody everywhere. But this particular one is supposed to teach us something. We're supposed to get some lessons. I'll talk about the lessons in just a minute. But let me tell you a little bit about the, the setting, what's going on here. So since most of us, if not all of us, 
don't know all the backstory to this story. Let me get it out there so it gives a little context. And the backstory is that near the north side of of the temple, the old temple that doesn't exist anymore, is a pool that has been named Bethesda, which means house of mercy. This particular uh, pool is close to the sheep's gate. Uh, the, the Jews, uh, by God's design, decided that they would not make the sacrifices of all the animals come in the same door, the same gate, the same place as all the people. And so on the other side of the temple is the sheep's gate. And not very far from there is a pool that was already in existence when they built the temple. And there was a legend that had developed around this particular pool. And the legend was that at some time in the past, somebody who was in some way had some illness or deformity or brokenness of their body happened to be in the water when it began to bubble up, when it began to move. Now, we know today that underneath that pool is a subterranean spring that periodically moves the water above it because water comes up from that spring. But legend has it that in that water, that one person so long ago uh, uh, either miraculously uh, was healed or felt so significantly better, like a warm spring, that everybody called that a miracle. And so a legend grew up around this pool of Bethesda that if you got in that water, if you were the first person in that water... When that water moved, you would be healed. And so every day there were loads. In fact, it says multitudes, which is a way of saying hundreds, thousands of, of people who were blind and deaf and paralyzed and carrying all kinds of illnesses laid by this water waiting for it to move so that they could be the first person in. In fact... The Jews, when, when you see the word the Jew, the two words the Jews here, they're talking about the religious leaders. They're not talking about all Jews, they're just talking about religious leaders, and it's a, it's a, 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 a euphemism for them. They are the ones who had a portico built around this pool. And you can see the portico around it so that they could provide shade because these people stayed there all day. And most of them, if their infirmity was so debilitating, they became tremendous beggars. Hanging out by the temple where people uh, came every day because of commerce or religious worship. Lots of reasons people came to the temple. Social uh, uh, contact, networking and businesses. Lots of reasons. And what would be right there would be this uh, uh, invalid's who were begging, and that's how they made a living. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he doesn't just see the multitudes, he sees the one. And this story is about how one man who had been paralyzed for 38 years is healed. What are we supposed to get from it? We're 2,000 years later. Are we supposed to learn something? Yes, I think we're supposed to learn two lessons. 
two very important lessons. One is that there is going to be a life without brokenness. And the other one is that eventually there's going to be a life without pictures. Not only is no one ever going to be broken again in any way, but also we're not going to need shadows and types and kinds and pictures because we'll have the real thing. And so with those two, isn't that pretty good? I only have two points. It's a miracle. The first one is life without brokenness. And so as we look at this particular passage, I want you to see this pitiful crowd that Jesus would have seen. He saw a pitiful crowd of broken people. Hundreds, if not thousands of people. Jesus has tender eyes toward the broken. In fact, the Old Testament says that you'll know he's the Christ because when he comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk, and the dead will rise. So Jesus has a particular heart that his ministry have evidences of who he claims to be by having these things happen uh, through him. And one of them is a story of a man who's 38 years where he could not walk. He had friends who delivered him to the pool of Bethesda, but could not stay. And so he remained there until the water. And year after year, month after month, the water would move, but he didn't have friends who could get him in. And so he waited. And he begged, provided for himself and what family he might have had through that begging This is a marvelous, incredible story. But if you don't recognize that Jesus could have healed everybody, you've missed the point of the story. He only heals one. Because he only needs one to tell you something important. He only needs one for us to learn our lesson. But you and I will not learn our lesson here if we don't recognize that he's not the only broken person. Not then. And not now. In fact, unless you and I see our brokenness and the brokenness of our world, this lesson will be lost on us. It'll just be another story in the Bible where somebody got healed. Unless we recognize our brokenness. Now, some of us, we, we know our culture's broken, don't we? we? We know that we don't just have differences like we used to. Many of the, the things that we debate today have been, been, been debated for a long time. But we don't even know how to have discussions anymore without being mean to one another. And so, now, it's not just politicians who don't know how to have a conversation. The average man on the street doesn't, people in their own families, can't even discuss and disagree. That's, that's breakage. There's a reason for that. We know that cosmologically. We know that in the transcendent, that man was created in the image of God to walk in the coolness of time with their God and have no distance between the creator and the creature. That's the way things were meant to be. But we know that's not the way it is. We go through long periods of time where we're struggling with our relationship with the Lord. 
And even if we think we're doing well, it is God who says, I've got something against you. Because you, you, you're, you're not obeying me the way you're supposed to. And so we, we recognize cosmologically, we, we recognize this on a big scale, but do we recognize that we individually are also broken? Some of us in this room are physically broken. Our, our parts don't work the way they once worked, or maybe they never worked right. And we see that often. We often see the physical brokenness. But that's not the only kind of brokenness in this room or in this world. There, there is also an emotional brokenness that the scars that are beneath the surface on the inside are harder to detect until they spill out into relationships, but often we don't see them. And then there's a spiritual brokenness. There's a, there's a, a, a disinterest in, in the Lord and spiritual things. There's a disinterest in what he has to say and what he has designed the world to be, what he's designed you to be. And that's a spiritual brokenness. What I love about the church that is different than every other organization, if you go to a business conference, if you go to a, a personal developmental conference, how does it work? Uh, typically, the speaker up front has already gone through and developed a series of systems to help you succeed because if you can be like him or her, then you will make it too. That's the whole idea behind uh, Tony Robbins' uh, uh, self-help. You know, this whole idea that I've got it, I've, I've packaged it, now come. And you make me rich. The church is not like that. The church is not a place where you come and you hear somebody who's got it all together. The church is the only place where the speaker and the congregation are the same. We are all broken. Some on the outside, some on the inside, and some spiritually. And if we don't recognize that, then this healing will do nothing for us. It can't. Because the truth is, unless you go to the doctor, you can't be healed. So unless we come to Jesus... There will be no true healing. Jesus asked a very interesting question in verse 6. He says, do you want to be healed? And doesn't that sound like a, a dumb question of, to ask somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years? Bill, a comedian, Bill Ingvall, has a whole routine built around dumb questions. If you know who he is, you can Google him and watch him on YouTube. He's going to do a much better job. You know, he tells the story of a truck driver who, who uh, uh, didn't see the sign that the bridge is low. And so he rams his trailer and gets it stuck underneath the bridge. And everybody's honking because the traffic is, is backing up. And so the police finally come and uh, a, a cop comes to the trucker and, and says, Did you get your truck stuck? And he says, no, I was towing this bridge but ran out of gas. (laughs) And he has this repeated line, here's your sign, that is dumb, stupid. He goes on and he tells story after story. He's got this this story of he and his 
uh, family has, has gone to a Christmas tree farm and, and uh, they're looking for a Christmas tree, but the owner of the Christmas tree farm comes up to him and says, you looking for a Christmas tree? And he says, no, my son had to go to the bathroom and your trees look really inviting. <laughs> He's got the story of flying a kite with a son and, and somebody comes up to him and says, you flying a kite? No, we're fishing for birds. <laughs> He's got so many of these. They could go on and on. Is that what Jesus is doing? It, it, is, is Jesus asking a dumb question where the paralyzed guy says, No, I like hanging out. Begging for money. And day after day not being able to walk. Do you think that's what he's asking? Or is he asking something that all of us need to hear. And that is a healing cost. You know, this is an incredible cost to this invalid of 38 years to walk. For 38 years, he's figured out a way to get by, a way to make enough money to scratch out a living so that he doesn't starve to death. He's made a way to hang out with the few friends that he's made of other people at the pool of Bethesda. And here's somebody who's coming along and says, do you really want to be healed? It's going to cost you. Nobody is going to allow you to be a beggar if you walk. You're going to have to get a skill. You're going to have to get a real job. And so this is a question that whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're here as a, as a true skeptic, someone who has real questions about Christianity, this question is for you. Do you really want a healing? If you do, you need to know that it's going to cost you because life is going to radically change for you because you've learned to adapt to your brokenness. You've learned to live and make a scratch out a living with your brokenness. But what are we supposed to get? Not just the healing, because that healing happened. We're supposed to get this idea that there's going to be a life without brokenness someday. This one person, he could have healed everybody, but he doesn't. He heals the one in order to teach us this lesson that there will be a day where Christ will make all things new. And when we hear that, we think that the old is gone and the new has come. Because it actually literally says that, but that's biblical language that means this. God is going to take through Christ everything that is old, that is broken down. And he's going to make it so much better than what it once was. So much better than the old. That we're going to call it something new. You know how you know that? When Jesus rose from the dead... His people both knew him and didn't know him at the same time. That is, we're going to know each other. But we're going to be so much better than we are now that we're going to call each other new. But we're still the old self, the old person. But so improved, so much better, without brokenness, that we're going to call each other new. And that's the way he's going to look at the earth. We tend to look at this earth as something that's passing away. And really what God is going to do to this planet of his that he loves, he's going to make it so much better than it is now. It's actually going to function and work the way it was designed that we're going to call it new. 
And that's why the Bible calls it new heavens and a new earth. So the very first lesson that you are supposed, to, you and I are supposed to take from this, in the midst of our own brokenness, that there's going to be a day where that's going to be gone. That people who are in wheelchairs will walk. That blind people will see. The deaf will hear. The dead will rise. The emotionally broken people. One thing that I have learned in ministry is that we don't just do sin. Sin does something to us. Whether it's ours or someone else. The breakage of our lives. The insecurities we feel. The inadequacies that we think we are. All of that is the result of somebody or us doing something that's doing something to us. And all that is going to be healed. And so one day, we are going to know a life without brokenness. And that's hard for us because we can't picture that. Because we've only known, like this 38-year paraplegic, is life with brokenness. But his healing is a picture of what is to come. Which brings us to the second lesson. And that is, is that we're going to have a life without pictures. We're not going to need these pictures anymore. The religious leaders see this man walking with his bed. Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and he walked. It happened to be on the Sabbath. And rather than rejoicing, because every religious leader knows this guy. He's been there for 38 years. He's been begging on the porticos for 38 years. Don't you think they would be rejoicing? No, no no joy. Because they're concerned. They ask him in verse 10, Why are you walking with your bed on the Sabbath? Which begs the question, why, why no joy? What's going on that they can't rejoice? You see, these folks have done what Auburn did after I left. When I left Auburn University, they got so stinking tired of the students coming out of the stands to get a piece of the field after a victory. They built all these hedges. They planted all these hedges on the field so that if you're going to go through them, you've got to go through all the stickers. You've got to go through all the pain to get to the field. What happens to hedges when they get too tall? You can't see what's going on in the field. You can't see the reason you've come. The religious leaders knew that the Sabbath was holy because God told them it was special. And he said, keep it. Keep it special. And so they devised hundreds of rules to help people define how do you keep the Sabbath, this one day a week, special. Hundreds of rules. And they were the enforcers. And one of the rules was that you could lie in your bed on the Sabbath, but you could not carry your bed on the Sabbath. Even if you had been for 38 years confined to that bed and you now walk. Don't you see what happened? The hedge that they had built around that special day had gotten so tall, so thick, so dense that they couldn't even see what the Sabbath was supposed to point to. That it was a picture of something else. 
because the hedges were so thick. They loved the rules and it kept them from seeing the grace. How about us? Have we looked at our lives and seen the hedges that we have built that people cannot see through, who cannot get through, and see the unbelievable grace of God? You know what Auburn had to do? He had to cut those hedges down for the students to see the game that they paid to come and see. So they have no joy. They ask him, and Jesus gives an answer to why he healed. He could have healed any day. He's been walking by this temple every day, and they've been there every day. Why did he wait and choose the Sabbath? Because of verse 17. My father is working until now. And I am working. Pastor Dan made that as an equivalent statement. And that is true. And that's going to go into much more detail in in coming chapters. But he's really making another point. The Jewish leaders, one of the hedges that they had built around the Sabbath is you can do no kind of work on this day because God rested on this day. Because God rested, that is, God didn't work, then we can't work. What they misunderstood because the hedge that they built, they could not see, is that, yes, God rested, God stopped working in creation, creation's done, But God never stopped working. You know how you know? Because you're sitting there breathing. Hit the person next to you that's gone to sleep. This is the important point of the message. They're breathing because God is still working. God is sustaining your life. And because He's working, we are working. And not only is our Father working in sustaining life, but Jesus then says, I'm working. What's He working on? If the Father's sustaining the cosmos, you're breathing, what is Jesus working on? Your redemption. He's come here to save you. He's going to say, I am the living water. Come and drink and have eternal life. And so if the Father and the Son are both working, that's why He's doing it on the Sabbath. To give them a picture that the Sabbath was supposed to be a picture of. How do we know that? Listen, listen to just what Hebrews 4 says. Hebrews 4 says, this is 9 and 10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. As we enter the finished work of God, we do not work for our salvation because he did. But not only is that true, but Jesus is finishing his work. And the Sabbath is pointing to that. How do we know that? Listen to what Colossians 2 says. 16 and 17 said, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. This is my favorite verse to quote people who says you can't have a glass of wine. 
or another dessert. <laughs> Let no one question you about food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Because these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. That is, you can be the best teetotaler on Sunday, but you have missed the point. It's not about you. It is always about the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we don't need or will not need these pictures any longer because we have the real thing. When I started dating Kathy, one of the very first things she did was she gave me a picture of herself. And that wasn't uh, self-centered. It was just that we didn't ever live in the same city together until we got married. And so I had this wonderful picture of her in my wallet. But what happens to pictures over time that you leave in a wallet? They begin to fade and deteriorate and We got married and I never replaced the picture. I don't need the picture. I've got the real thing. You might want to see a picture. (laughs) But that's what Jesus is saying in Colossians. Is that you don't need the shadows. You've got the real thing. And that's going to be the way life always is. Do you realize in the new heavens and the new earth there's not going to be a temple, there's not going to be a sun or a moon or a stars because they are just shadows of God Himself because like in the garden we'll have Him forever and evermore. While this man was an invalid, they did not notice Him. How do you know they didn't notice Him? In verse 7 He says, I had no one to put me in. They noticed Him now. The lame man was walking, carrying his bed of all days on the shadow day. This lame man is healed because one day we will need no more pictures. One day we will have the real thing, the new creation. And we've already had a deposit. We've already had a piece of evidence that that's going to be true. And it's not the cross. It's the resurrection. There's a reason Jesus for 40 days walked around so people could see that the real thing, the new creation has already started. And therefore, I encourage you, be involved in new creation work. Things that are broken, you can work toward their healing. Obviously, it won't be permanently healed. Obviously, it won't be completely healed, no matter what you get involved in. But it is a shadow of the real thing. Don't we want to teach the world to sing? Because He is the real thing. That's the beauty of being part of the church. Because we are the leading edge of the real thing. And you and I get to be part of that. As we get to tell the world in the midst of all of its brokenness, you never have to convince the world it's broken. But you do have to convince them that it is only a shadow of what's coming. Does this make sense to you? If, if, 
if you're a skeptic here and, and you, don't, you don't quite understand all this, does the world being broken make sense to you? And if it does, the hope that it one day won't always be broken, doesn't that also warm you, begin to draw you? Doesn't this make sense? This is what I mean by trying on Christianity and seeing if it fits the reality in which we live. It's reasonable. Otherwise, you have to have another theory. And every other theory falls. It has, nothing new is under the sun. It's what Solomon said. Do you know why? It's because all the theories that we come up with today have all been thought of before. They're just repackaged. And this is the only one that we have evidence that it is going to happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people that you have drawn into this place. Drawn into this place because they are broken and want to know that what happened to this man 2,000 years ago will happen to them, will happen to us, will happen to our city, will happen to our country, will happen to our world. We thank you for the shadows, the pictures that you've given us to keep encouraging us and, and giving us hope in the face of the brokenness we experience. That the real thing is that you have entered this world to make all things new. And you have made us the leading edge of that change. That one day we will walk in the cool of the day, not at the dawn of time, but at the end of time with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.